Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with our community, and with the planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And one of the ways that we normally greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by greeting the people around us and recognizing that the divine within us speaks to the divine within them. So this would be a good time, if you have comments on the platform that you're watching from, to greet the people who are here around you virtually as we experience this morning together. I invite you now to say the chalice lighting words with me if you were moved to do so. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship today comes to us from Lao Tzu or Lao Tzu, depending on your tradition. He was an ancient Chinese philosopher and writer, the reputed author of the Tao Te Ching, the founder of philosophical Taoism, and a deity in religious Taoism and traditional Chinese religions. As a religious figure, he is worshipped under the name Supreme Old Lord, and as one of the Three Pure Ones. During the Tang Dynasty, he was granted the title Supremely Mysterious and Primordial Emperor. He wrote, In dwelling, live close to the ground. In thinking, keep to the simple. In conflict, be fair and generous. In governing, don't try to control. In work, do what you enjoy. In family life, be completely present. This congregation wrote a mission statement so that we would know what we mean to do and how we mean to go forward. We wrote it on the wall in our beloved sanctuary, which we will see again soon, someday. And we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After our mission statement, we have a moment for beloved community. And in that moment, we talk about the culture we live in and try to bring to light things we may not have known about. And this morning, I would just like to say that of the 208,000 people who have died in our country from the virus, one in five is a person of color. That is disproportionate, and it is because of long-standing inequities in our health care system. 
And you all raised money to abolish millions of dollars of medical debt in Harris County, which is Houston and the surrounding areas. And so you have already done something to lift the burden on our brothers and sisters who have been staggering under medical debt. But the whole medical system has a flaw in it where people's implicit bias or people's economic status keeps them under water when it comes to getting good health care, the best health care, the health care a person who identifies as white would get. Let's just notice that and fight to make it not so. Good morning. Here in our pre-K kindergarten classroom, when our students meet in person, we like to dress up in towels, wrap them around our necks, and pretend that they're superhero capes. And then we practice and play lots of ways that we can help people as superheroes. But not all superheroes wear capes, do they? Some wear long black robes and fancy collars. We had a superhero in our country that died just two weeks ago. And she saved people not by swooping in with a cape and helping them out of trees or stopping trains with her bare hands, but by disagreeing with people, by sharing her ideas and opinions. Let's read a little bit about the story and history of Justice Ginsburg. I dissent. Ruth Bader Ginsburg makes her mark, written by Debbie Levy, illustrations by Elizabeth Badley. You could say that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life had been one disagreement after another. Disagreement with creaky old ideas, with unfairness, with inequality. Ruth disagreed, disapproved, and differed. She objected, she resisted, she dissented. Disagreeable? No. Determined? Yes. This is how Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed her life and ours. When she was growing up, People didn't think that girls should grow up to do big things. Girls were expected to find husbands. Ruth's mother disagreed. She took Ruth to the library where she learned all about women from history, women who did big, important things. Sometimes when she went on vacation, she saw signs that said, no dogs or Jews allowed. This is how it was in those days. Hotels, restaurants, and even entire neighborhoods would announce their prejudice with these horrible signs. Ruth and her family were Jewish. This was prejudice, pure and simple. It was her turn to disagree. She disagreed by never forgetting how it felt to read such words. She never forgot the sting of prejudice. In school, she protested when she was asked to write with her right hand as a left-handed person. From that day forward, she wrote with her left hand, and it turned out she had very nice handwriting. She objected that girls had to take sewing and cooking classes and didn't get to take shop like the boys. She didn't get what she wanted, but she learned that it was unfair to girls and to boys, and that sometimes life was like that. She loved to sing and she loved opera, but found that she couldn't carry a tune, and for the rest of her life sang on her own. Right before her graduation, when she was due to give a graduation speech, her mother died. She didn't attend her graduation, but she knew what her mother wanted. Three months later, she left home to attend college. 
Not many girls went to college in the 1950s. She made friends, but she also met girls who excluded Jews from their clubs. Most of the boys thought girls should be looking for husbands. And then she met Martin Ginsburg. They fell in love and hatched a plan. After college, they would go to law school, both of them. Lawyers, Ruth had learned, could fight unfairness and prejudice in the court. People didn't think Ruth should go to law school. Ruth disapproved right back. So did Marty. They got married, they went to law school, and they had a baby, Jane. Ruth was one of only nine women in her law school, out of 500 men. She studied mightily and tied for first place in the class, and yet she still couldn't get a job when she graduated. Why not? She was a woman. She was a mother. She was Jewish. But Ruth was not out. She resisted and persisted. Finally, a judge hired her. She worked really hard. After that, one law school hired her and then another. She became one of the few female law professors in the whole country. And she did it with a new baby at home, James. She worked her way into being a lawyer and professor, but around her, other women were excluded from jobs. And these ideas, all of these prejudices, were held up by the laws of the land. Ruth really, really disagreed with this. So Ruth went to court to fight for equal treatment of women. The most important cases went to the Supreme Court. The first time she appeared there, Ruth was so nervous she thought she might be sick. So then she decided to imagine them as her students. She, Professor Ginsburg, needed to teach these students, who were all men, why a person's choices shouldn't be limited just because she was born a girl. Ruth did not win every case, but she won enough. With each victory, people enjoyed a little more equality. People were sometimes confused by the fact that she argued cases in front of the Supreme Court and her husband cooked the family dinner. People found this strange. Ruth, Marty, Jane, and James did not concur. They kept on being the type of family they wanted to be. She became so well-known as a lawyer that President Jimmy Carter chose her to be a judge in Washington, D.C., and then President Bill Clinton asked her to be a justice on the Supreme Court. Ruth agreed. In each case that the Supreme Court considered after hearing from lawyers who argue for each side, the nine justices take a vote. The side that gets the most votes wins the case. The justices who agree write an opinion to explain the court's ruling. When Justice Ginsburg voted with the winning side, she wore a special lace collar over her robe. But many times when the Supreme Court announced the decision, Justice Ginsburg disagreed. I dissent, she said. And she wrote her own opinion explaining why. Plus, she wore a different collar, just for dissenting. I dissent, she said, when the court wouldn't help women or African Americans or immigrants who had been treated unfairly at work. I dissent when the court rejected a law meant to protect the right of all citizens to vote, no matter their skin color. I dissent when the court said no to schools that offered African Americans a better chance to go to college. She could be very convincing. In one dissent, she explained why the court was wrong. Congress and the president agreed with her and passed a law to undo the court's ruling. She most often disagreed with the views of Justice Scalia, but they didn't just complain. They shared their conflicting ideas. Each pointed out weaknesses in the other's arguments, and after the opinions were written, they enjoyed a wonderful friendship. Even though she was the oldest person on the Supreme Court, she didn't quit. She worked as hard as ever. She exercised in the gym. She never missed a day. She attended the opera, gave speeches, and traveled. Many have cheered her for her persistence and independence. They called her a rock star, a queen, a goddess, a hero. 
Of course, she's not a rock star, a queen, or a goddess, but she is a hero. She made change happen, and she changed minds. She cleared a path for people to follow in her footsteps, girls in college, women in law school, and everyone who wants to be treated without prejudice. Her voice may not have carried a tune, but it sang out for equality. Step by step, she made a difference, one disagreement after another. Audra Lorde is a self-described black lesbian mother warrior poet. She dedicated her life to confronting racism, sexism, classism, and homophobia through her poetry and essays. For those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice. For those of us who were imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk. For by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hoped to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcome. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering. We were never meant to survive. Now is the time in our service when we join with one another in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we speak to God or listen to God as we understand God or where we listen to our inner wisdom or where we just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. This is one of the ways that we get to that still place inside what Emerson called the wise silence. Please join with me before we enter the wise silence in a prayer. Beloved mystery with many names, we ask for clarity as we enter into the still point. We ask for compassion for ourselves and one another. We ask for our eyes to be opened. We ask to know how to balance fighting to make our world a better place, enjoying our world, and resting our souls and our bodies. Let us breathe together in silence. As we continue to maintain an attitude of meditation, you are invited to light candles in your house, candles of joy or sorrow, hope, remembrance, or determination.
sometimes these days, it feels like we're all in a giant slow motion dryer and our lives just get turned upside down and then we kind of adjust and then they get turned upside down again and we adjust again. But adjusting over and over again while having to continue to do our work and continue to be our family Um, teaching our kids and loving one another while continuing to take care of our bodies and our homes and take care of those who have nothing among us. It's very easy to feel testy and overwhelmed. And when we're feeling testy and overwhelmed... If you drop a conflict into the middle of that feeling, it is likely that we're not going to respond in the conflict with our best and most enlightened selves. So today we're going to talk about how to have smaller fights. And I'm going to start by talking about uh, fighting a little bit. So... Most of us learn how to fight originally in the family that we grew up in. We heard fights among our grown-ups, and we had fights among the kids, and we saw how those were handled, and we had rules that were unspoken in our families. A family therapist would call that a family treaty. You have rules like who's allowed to raise their voice, who's allowed to show anger, Is there anybody who's allowed to throw things? Is there anyone who's allowed to hit? Was there somebody in your family who was angry very sweetly with a lilting tone in their voice? Did someone just get cold and quiet when they were angry? Did things go instantly from the beginning of a conflict to nuclear level without passing through... uh, discussion and intense negotiation. Some people adjust their way of fighting as they grow up. As adults, we learn. I think um, some folks have learned to argue from right-wing talk radio, most especially uh, since the 1980s. Rush Limbaugh, who argues by just continuing to talk and talking over a person. And this is a a very difficult way of arguing to, to counter. You can't really have a conversation. You can't really get anywhere. If somebody is talking while you're talking, they can't possibly be listening to you. And so you just kind of subside and wait for them to wind down if they ever do. I spent 15 years as a couples counselor, and so I've seen a lot of different ways of fighting. And so I want to tell you about uh, five ways to make a fight bigger. These are ways, these are techniques for fight escalation. One, you can make a fight bigger by telling the other person how they feel or think or what they believe. You say, oh, 
I, you want to do blah, 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 or you think that this, you're all in favor of blah, blah, blah. And my family growing up, the telling people how they thought was expressed like this. Oh, you don't think that. Number two way of escalating a fight is that you take something someone said and take it to the extreme, distorting it. This is an excellent technique for making a fight bigger. So I say something like, Black Lives Matter. And you say something like, oh, so white lives don't matter? Blue lives don't matter? Law enforcement doesn't matter? Nobody matters except black lives? That's not what you said. But somehow they heard only black lives matter. Or they pretended to hear that just so they could crank it up to nuclear before you started even having a conversation. So, oh, so you think that phrase, especially the words, oh, so, those are words that are used to crank up fights in so many uh, instances. And, oh, so, is a good way to, to start a sentence where you're telling somebody how they feel or what they think or what they believe. Oh, so you don't care about that? Oh, so you want me not to care? Oh, so you think this is all about you? That's a way to make a fight bigger. Another time-tested way to make a fight bigger is to tell the other person to calm down. You just need to calm down. You just need to watch your tone. You just need to, you just need to be more logical. I just need you to cool out. This never helps a fight get smaller. If this is a family fight, a sure fire way to make the fight bigger is by telling the other person that they're acting just like their father or just like their mother. If you say that in a fight, it might be true, but it does not show a good faith desire to make the fight smaller. Another way to make the fight bigger is to bring up things that happened in the past that, that can't be helped. Like, we wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't decided we had to buy this big house. Or we wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't just quit your job. Or any number of things that the person did in the past and can't undo. Okay, now it's only fair. After I've told you five techniques for escalating a fight, then I tell you some ways to de-escalate, make a fight smaller. One of the main ways to de-escalate a fight is to remember that when somebody's fighting, they're almost always scared. People fight when they're scared. There's... um. An author, J.D. Vance, who wrote the book that many of y'all have read called Hillbilly Elegy. And here's what he says. For kids like me, the part of the brain that deals with stress and conflict is always activated. We're constantly ready, ready to fight or flee because there's a constant exposure to the bear. Whether that bear is an alcoholic dad or an unhinged mom 
I see conflict and I run away or prepare for battle. Some people these days are calling that trauma. There's trauma from one event or there's trauma from a long series of events. Almost everybody has some. And what they're saying, our board right now is reading the book called My Grandmother's Hands. It's all about trauma in the body. And what they're saying is that it gets activated so quickly that your response to what is said comes out almost without going through your brain. My friend Joanna Fontaine Crawford, who is the minister of the UU Church up north, um, I'm pointing this way because I am not pointing north from here. Anyway, uh, Live Oak UU Church, she describes it this way. She says, everybody's got a little shard of glass buried somewhere in their body, mind, spirit. And you can really only tell where it is when you've bumped it by accident. Sometimes really scared, desperate people or terrible, morally bankrupt people will bump it on purpose. And even now, as our nation spirals toward increasing polarization and a violent backlash against the anti-racism movement, everybody is wound up and everybody's pieces of glass are just kind of vibrating. Very easy for fights and conflicts to escalate in that situation and become bigger than they need to be. Try to think I'm resilient, not reactive. Reactive means you instantly react when you feel attacked. Sometimes people can feel attacked just because you think differently from the way that they think. You don't believe the way they do, so they feel attacked. I don't understand that. Because it seems just like a disagreement. But some people grew up in a family where any disagreement was an attack. You had to fall in line with the family opinion or the group opinion. And if you didn't fall in line with the group opinion, you were making trouble. And so people who are reactive are wired in such a way as that their, their trauma responds or their family treaty rules respond to what you're saying as if you had just attacked them. And we do that too. Everybody gets defensive when they feel criticized. If somebody tells me that I said something that hurt them, my first response is to say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. It's a big deal. I didn't mean it that way, but it landed that way. Or if I were less uh, of a, an experienced person, I might say something like, oh my gosh, you're just being so sensitive. A better way if you hurt somebody is to say, tell me what that was like for you. Tell me how that feels. 
It takes a lot of resilience to listen to someone while they tell you something uncomfortable. And then your task is to not do a premature apology, which is like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then if they want to talk about it some more, you go, I said I was sorry, just let it go. Listen, and that will make a fight de-escalate. Be resilient enough to hear what they're saying, even if what they're saying is really dumb. And even if you know facts that contradict what they're saying, they likely don't care. And so if you can be resilient enough just to listen for five minutes, it's probably more than they've gotten from anybody else. And then you could start asking questions before you react. This is number four, way to de-escalate a fight. Ask questions. How did you come to this opinion? What makes you think this? Tell me more. Help me understand. Questions can really help a situation not only de-escalate, but actually move forward. Questions are very fruitful if they are wise questions or open-ended questions. Number five, remember that at the root of most fights, even fights you have on the internet, which are not real fights, but they can feel real, at the root of most fights is this question, am I lovable? Do you love me? Am I enough? It may sound like a fight about something completely other than that. But at the root, it is my belief, my opinion, my experience, that the root question is, am I lovable? Let me end with a quote by the Chinese sage Lao Tzu. In dwelling, live close to the ground. In thinking, keep to the simple. In conflict, be fair and generous. In governing, don't try to control. In work, do what you enjoy. In family life, be completely present. The wisdom of the ages. Now please join me, if you wish, in saying our words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. You may be, you may be, one last spark. One last spark we all need, we all need to light the whole world, to light the whole world. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at 
austinuu.org.